I definitely want to start by saying it is a privilege to be speaking to you uh, today on the concept, um, the vital connections of wholeness. How many of you are clinicians? Clinicians? You deliver care on some level? Okay, wonderful. Um, I think as clinicians, we at times can be so patient-focused that we overlook our own wholeness. And so as much as you'll listen to this information um, for how it can impact your patients, your practice, I, I would really like you to be listening and, uh, and, and taking notes on how this can impact you. Um, because certainly if the vessel is broken, it will not deliver what it is supposed to. Is that right? Especially broken in a way in which the cross hasn't broken you. Is that fair to say? So we understand. So I'm, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm inclined to jump into my um, talk. But sometimes if we're a little premature, it can be dangerous. Would you agree? So my goal here is that we would discuss the concept of wholeness and have a viable definition for it. Um, and then we'll have a discussion of the vital connections of wholeness. Within that, we will also talk about um, the three dimensions of purpose because it is so core to wholeness. And then we will talk about the over, we'll, we'll do an overview of the master process of creating. So that will be our bonus. In formulating this theory, in, in formulating how it is that I would approach um, psychiatry, I did take some cues from my, my, my intellectual forefathers. You see, Dr. Sigmund Freud is, of course, famous in the field of uh, psychiatry to the point where those outside the field of psychiatry are pretty um, familiar with Freud, even some of his theories. Uh, in fact, it is, it's pretty well known that Greek mythology actually influenced his theory. He talked about things like the Oedipus complex and or the Electra um, complex, and these, of course, uh, being things that were influenced by Greek mythology. And if Sigmund Freud can be bold enough um, to allow a myth, something that we know is not true, uh, to shape his theories that he's going to use when people are in crises and bringing their lives into him, I thought I could take some license and use scripture, um, the Bible, um, what we as Christians believe is true um, to influence how I would approach the treatment of patients that entrust their lives to me in a period of crisis. Um, I also took uh, some influence um, from Dr. Abraham Maslow. Dr. Abraham Maslow is famous for what? Maslow's hierarchy of needs. How did he formulate his theory of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? So Maslow noted that we as clinicians, we as an intellectual community, we have obsessed over fragmentation. We have paid very close attention 
um, to disease. In fact, we have become experts in disease um, as we've allowed our understanding of wholeness to suffer. And so what Maslow did was he said, as opposed to studying just mental sickness, what if I studied the people who are whole, in fact, people who are achieving amazing things in their lives. And so he selected people like, for example, Albert Einstein to formulate his theories. And I let that influence me because I think it makes sense to take a look at uh, a person who, has, who is as accomplished as Albert Einstein. However, I don't think Albert Einstein can shake a stick to Adam, who's coming direct from the hand of God. If, if I want to understand wholeness and what wholeness looks like in, in its original uh, picture, just untouched, uncorrupted, I should take a look at Adam. Because that's really going to help me understand if a patient is coming into me fragmented, what is it that I'm trying to get them back to? Um, and then lastly, uh, I considered the work of Dr. Bruce Alexander. Dr. Bruce Alexander is a Canadian addictionologist. And without fail, there would be addiction studies done and the researchers would conclude, look at how addictive that substance is. Um, um, the, the animal is choosing the substance even to the point where um, they're dying. And so Dr. Alexander, he's, he, he said, you know, you're not showing how addictive that substance is. What you're showing is how awful their living environment is. And so what he did was he developed a thing called Rat Park. And Rat Park was essentially a Disney World for rats. And so it was, it was huge. It gave them areas where they could congregate and associate with each other. And into that perfect rat utopia, he introduced elements where they could self-dispense substances like opiates or heroin. And wouldn't you know, the rats would reject the drugs and instead choose to associate with each other. And so he, he walked away with a theory called the dislocation theory, where he said, as we become disconnected, disconnected from what I'm terming vital connections, as we become disconnected, it increases our risk for addictions and ways of coping that are less than ideal. So are you ready for us to begin? So now let's take a gander into a scripture that I believe we are well aware of. But before we do that, let's say I open up the Bible and I go to that first word. What does it read? God created the heavens and the earth, right? Um, did that impact you? <laughs> you see, the, the problem is there is a key that unlocks the power, the beauty, and the relevance of Scripture. And if there's a key that unlocks it, there's also a key that locks it. And the key that locks it is intoxication. In our culture today, we are intoxicated. We are busy. 
And because we are so busy, we are not in the mental state to appreciate the value, the power, and the relevance of Scripture. You see, what's the, what's the, what's the, what's the contrast to intoxication? Well, the contrast to intoxication would be what Peter warns us, be sober and be vigilant. You see, as soon as you have a moment of quiet, if you have any extended moment of quiet, have you noticed the universal questions that float to the surface of your thinking? They're universal. In fact, I can predict them. What's one of those universal questions you ask as soon as you start having a moment to reflect? Very good. Who said that? Raise your hand. Who said that? What's my purpose? What's another one? Why am I here? And what's another one? Why were we created? So I'm going to prove I'm a psychiatrist. I'm going to prove I can read your mind. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? The universal questions that float to the surface of our thinking as soon as we have a moment of peace. It's almost as if we live under an agenda that has us running a rat race just so we never ask those questions. And there's one more. Why are things so bad? If you're in a grocery store line right now, The random person, they are bewildered. What on earth is going on? Why are things so bad? Those are the universal questions that live in our bosom and in a moment of peace, they surface. And I I submit to you, those questions are so bothersome when we can't answer them, I think we embrace busyness just so they won't come to the surface of our thinking. But as I mentioned, the Bible is written for the sober mind. If you read it and it doesn't impact you, it's because you're intoxicated. But once you start asking those questions, who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Now let's take a look at that question again. Look at at that first statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you see the power of that? God is wasting no time to speak to the sober mind. You see, if you are another discipline in medicine, you have the luxury of embracing a field that has sort of almost evolved past scripture. But when it comes to psychiatry, when it comes to mental health and psychotherapy, scripture is core. It's core in the other disciplines as well. But when we leave that platform of scripture, the value, the treasure, and the richness that we leave behind is deadly. It's deadly. So here it is. I had all these questions, all these questions that will keep me up at night. And the first thing I encounter in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, I'm created. I have a creator. 
Well, tell me more about that. If you're a cardiologist, how does a cardiology text begin? Heart disease is killing half a million people annually. Every book. If you're a, if you're a gastroenterologist, colon cancer is ravaging. Every book begins by trying to get your attention. It's trying to declare, this is relevant to you. It's a good thing you picked this book up. And scripture is no exception. It makes the greatest declaration that is the most important thing you should have on your mind. Why am I here? Who am I? And there it is. God created the heavens and the earth. And the minute you swallow that, the minute you understand that's your creator, perhaps that creator can answer the other questions. Does that make sense? Okay, good. So recall Maslow's study of remarkable people. Now, let's go back to Adam. Yes, ladies, I think Adam was attractive. (laughs) I think he was fine. I think he was fine. Right? But let's think about Adam for a moment. Right? What is the scriptural evidence you have that Adam was brilliant? Who said that? Who said that? He named what? Who said that? My brother right there. All right. Now, what does that mean that he named all the animals? You see, Adam has essentially passed the greatest exam or oral exam ever given on this planet. You think you're bad because you have a PhD in psychology. You think you're amazing because you're a physician and you've subspecialized in cardiology. Adam has studied every single animal until he can ascribe to that animal a name that matches its core essence. And the creator of that animal says, you're correct, you're correct, you're correct, you're correct. Over and over and over again, this brother is brilliant. So I have evidence that allows me to choose him as my topic for, okay, what does wholeness look like? What exactly does wholeness look like? So the question really is, what is Adam connected to? Seven vital connections, seven vital things that God connected Adam to. Seven vital things. What's the first thing Adam is connected to? He's connected to God. That's your first and your most important connection. We'll run through them, then we'll go back and unpack them. What's the second vital thing Adam is connected to? He's connected to Eve. So we're going to call that community. And we can subdivide community into romantic and non-romantic. The ladies sometimes want us to call, um, say he, the first thing he was connected to is Eve. No, ladies. <laughs> first thing he's connected to is God. Okay? But we'll subdivide community into romantic and non-romantic. What's the next thing Adam is connected to? Resources. We'll come back and unpack that. The next thing he's connected to is time. Then health, both physical and mental. 
The sixth thing he is connected to is purpose. And the last thing he is connected to is rest and recreation. So let's start with that spiritual connection. How does one come into a knowledge of God? How does, how does one come to knowledge? Imagine, a person is born on the planet. How do they come to God? If you have someone who is academically inclined, can I get that bottle of water by any chance, please? Thank you so much. Um, if you have someone who's academically inclined, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. You have someone who's academically inclined, they talk about, you know, reading and, 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 and reading being how they search for truth, right? I want to walk you through something. What's the scope of knowledge? Imagine if you said, it is through the search of knowledge that I'm going to encounter God. If this was all of knowledge... Imagine trying to get a dot in that. Just a dot in all of known knowledge. Well, let's actually just look at a small glimpse of knowledge. Library of Congress, housing a million issues of world newspapers, 500,000 microfilms, 6,000 comic books, 32 million books, 61 million manuscripts. This is a stat that I think is interesting, receives 22,000 new items published in the U.S. every business day. It adds an average of 10,000 items per day. Look at what you're going to have to search through. 838 miles of bookshelves in your quest for knowledge. So imagine a person who says, there is no God. How much of knowledge did you search through before you conclude it? And if you got through all that, uh, that was the American Library of Congress. Now let's go over to the British Library of Congress, where we can go through another 388 miles. Anybody seeing a problem? So how does one come to a knowledge of Christ? Well, young lady, oh, do you have any dust particles in your home? Do you have any? You do? Um, and if I came to your home and I dropped off a dust particle, I come back a week later, would you be able to give me back that dust particle? You wouldn't be able to? Such a shame. Such a shame. What just happened? What did I do? What, what just happened? It's, what is it? Okay. This is Earth our beautiful earth, and um, this is earth compared to Mercury. This is earth compared to Jupiter, and this is uh, Jupiter compared to Sirius, and this is Sirius compared to Aldebaran. On this scale, earth has now disappeared. This is Aldebaran compared to a star called Beetle Goose. Is it juice? I just want to call it Beetle Juice. And this is Beetle Juice compared to the V.Y. Canis Majoris 
the largest star in our solar system, about 1.9 billion miles in diameter. Earth, at this point, is a dust particle, a cosmic dust particle. He died for an invisible cosmic dust particle. He didn't wait for the search. He did something so amazing, the world is still talking about it. Spirituality. What is the essence of um, spirituality? So a few you know, details you want to be aware of. So you have folk like um, Dr. Harold Koenig, um, who has brought academic rigor to validating the fact that people who are engaged in things like a religious experience actually have a better morbidity and mortality. I thought this was something that was particularly noteworthy. Um, Dr. Koenig and his colleagues, and, 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 and the reason Dr. Koenig is really famous in the you know, in, in this community of intellectuals bringing rigor into validating the power of um, Christianity um, is because of the rigor that he puts into his studies, um, the rigor to weed out confounders and make sure that his data can stand up to the scrutiny of the secular academic uh, community. And so this is one of the studies he conducted. Um, he looked at 444 hospitalized patients uh, gave them a battery of questions so that you know, people barely can, can influence it even if they're trying to. And so they asked them so many questions that now when you, when you look at the data, you can draw associations the person can't even control. But the bottom line is 444 hospitalized patients. And what he was really examining was, was their view of God impacting their morbidity and mortality? So, for example, what he wanted to know was there are people who felt as if God had abandoned them or they were questioning God's love for them. Do you know the people that were holding those questions in their mind had a 28 and 22 percent respective increased mortality? Just the views that you hold in your mind. So uh, when we talk about spirituality, one of the things that scripture, if you look at it in total, and, and, and my, my good friend Ivor Meyer, he talks about juicing the Bible. If you, if you juice the Bible down to its core essence, ultimately it tells the story of a universe that was perfect and somebody rogue uh, came onto the scene. They were thrown out of heaven, a perfect earth was created, and they corrupted that outpost. And then a savior died for the redemption of that world and is coming back for us again. The essence of it, the essence of the story. Um, so we're vitally connected to spirituality, but the other vital thing that we are connected to is relationships. Um, you've heard it said it is better to give than to receive. Who really believes that? So what you see in this world is we're under a lot of deceptions. 
So what this looks like practically is, I talked about how relationships subdivide into romantic and non-romantic. I want you to think about what your mindset was when you were choosing your now you know, partner. I mean, really think about if at the age of 21, 22, 25, you were asking yourself, I'm looking for someone to see how much value I can deliver to that person. Tell me you were asking yourself that. <laughs> Tell me you were asking yourself that. In contrast to, let me choose the most beautiful, the most attractive person that can do the most for me. And, and the deception, and, and same thing with, I mean, and it's what a lot of times keeps us from having children. So often people are having children more for what the children will do for them, more for how children validate you, how, how, how you'll have this one person on the planet who won't hate you. <laughs> Boy, does that backfire. <laughs> have you heard of teenagers? <laughs> Didn't quite think that part through. But thinking about what they can do for you in contrast to what can I do for that person. I'll, I'll be the first to tell you my marriage improved so much when I started to understand this is about what can I do for her. What can I, you, do you know what I do means? I do means you're signing up to make this person your life study your life study. I want to position myself to become an expert at pleasing you. Others may not understand it, but I will. Does this make sense? Yes. Gotta make sure time doesn't get away from me. Um, so relationships, your relationships skyrocket when you understand it's not about me trying to divert as much as the resources towards myself as it is. How can I share? How can I make a meaningful contribution? Same thing in your non-romantic um, relationships. Of course, boundary setting is, is key as well. But the bottom line is Adam was made for community. A second vital component of wholeness is community, your place in community. And so what you see is as people become isolated, it promotes fragmentation. It's a step away from wholeness. Does that make sense? Resources. We're excited about our 5,000 square foot homes. We're excited about our backyard pool. Adam has been given a globe. Adam has been given oceans. You see, God does not half-step when he is preparing you for a work. He is equipping Adam to fulfill the purpose he's ultimately going to give him. God will call you to a thing and not have the resources already arranged for what you're going to need. But do not miss the fact that resources are important. Resources are a key thing. So as you assess a patient, as you assess a community, a natural question is, how are things going from a financial standpoint? You miss a mortgage payment, it is a profound impact on your mental and physical well-being. Make no mistake about that. 
time. Time is the one thing that we all have the same amount of. But unfortunately, we are not jealous and careful with how we use our time. It should be as anxiety-provoking to you when I ask you, do you have five minutes? As it is, if I were to ask you, do you have five dollars? <laughs> should be just as anxiety-provoking. Hold on a second. What do you want to do with that time? Is there someone else you could ask? I'll have to get back to you on that one. I gotta go do the budget. Because time is pivotal. Does that make sense? The other one is health. Of course, mental health and physical health is pretty straightforward. You know, obviously, we, we, we rarely miss that one. Um, but I wanna go to purpose. I wanna make sure we have enough time for that. Um, so not only does God give Adam all those resources, give him those vital connections, but God gives him the gift of a purpose. Do you know what your purpose is? I would ask you, what is your purpose? Why do you get up in the morning? In fact, what's your God-given purpose? What would you say? It's a rhetorical question. I can already see some people coming to an imaginary mic. It's a rhetorical question. I really want you to think about it. What is my purpose? And says who? When you leave this room, my hope is that you will be crystal clear on what not only your purpose is, but what your God-given purpose is. Okay? So the first dimension of your purpose um, has to do with this gentleman by the name of um, the brain that changes itself, um, Dr. Deutsch. Because what Dr. Deutsch does in his book, this is a secular book, I'm not encouraging it from a you know, spiritual standpoint. Um, it's, it's got some good science in it, but it's definitely written from an evolutionary standpoint. So I throw out that little disqualifier. Um, but that said, one of the things he discusses in this book is this concept of neuroplasticity. You guys know about how many neurons we have? It's about 100 billion neurons. And then one neuron can have up to how many connections? One neuron can have, I used to say 10,000, it's about 250,000 connections. One neuron, 250,000 connections, Purkinje fibers. Are those connections permanent? What affects whether a neuron will synapse? So let me go to this. So this is the neuron, and um, this is a neuron stain making its, you know, thousands of um, synapses. So believe it or not, the very way that you think plus your behaviors will drive whether a neuron synapses. Um, I was uh, talking to a patient, uh, it was like yesterday, not yesterday, but the day before, and we are challenging the patient to do something, and, and they were kind of giving me a hard time, and I just broke up. 
patient, I won't say her name, um, you have 100 billion neurons. We are too generous with I can't. We're too generous. Not, not only that, those synapses are driven by how we think and how we behave. In other words, God designed us to grow in expertise. It's like, that's why you can think your way into a new brain, a new pattern of thinking. So you can see how dangerous it is to embrace ideologies that falsely limit your abilities. I can't. Shut up. (laughs) Yes, you can. With the God behind you? With the powers he endowed you with? Anyway, first dimension of your purpose is your path. God has gifted, God has blessed you with a path. What does the scripture say? He is the author and He is intimately acquainted with your journey. And he has placed some things there just to cultivate the faith that he is after developing. In in fact, what does it say in Genesis? Um, Cursed is the ground for, for, for my sake, right? Is that what he says? For my sake? Cursed is the ground for your sake. What that means is he has made this world into the obstacle course that would develop the qualities that he's looking for. He makes Adam perfect. Adam sees that Eve has fallen. What's the mistake that Adam makes? It was a lack of faith. So now God says, clearly, it's your faith muscle that requires conditioning. He turns the world into a gym, an LA fitness, a 24 fitness, if you will. A condition that that will condition your faith. As soon as you commit to trying to accomplish anything, there are setbacks. There are challenges to your commitment. And there's a requirement that you have to have faith. What is faith? Faith is cultivating an image of something that does not exist. In fact, the present circumstances says, not only does it not exist, it is unlikely that can be brought into existence. And not only do you have to get a clear picture of it, you have to counter the present and say that can be brought into existence. Substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. But that's the power, that's the gift we have as humans. We can conjure an image of what does not exist. And God endows us with the power to bring it into existence. No great thing has been done on this planet without exercising a measure of faith. What is the measure of your faith? Think about it. No, no, really, what is the measure of your faith? You see, when God blesses you, it's got to fit within your faith. What is the measure of faith? You ever think about that? 
What is the measure of Christ's faith? God loves it when you give all. He's like, I'll give it all up for you. First dimension of your faith is path. The second dimension of your faith is talent. Each and every one of you have you've been blessed with a talent. But a talent is rude. A talent is undisciplined. It works sometimes. It doesn't work sometimes. So not only does he bless you with a talent, he also requires you that you cultivate that talent into what? Skill. You guys remember when we were medical students? I remember in our first day of medical students, um, one of the students was using the otoscope. No, no, I think it was the otoscope. Is that the ear one? As the ophthalmoscope? I mean, it was, it was hilarious. Talented, but no skill. And it's, you're required to condition that talent into skill. And then what's the last dimension of your purpose? First dimension, your path. You are on a path. Second dimension, talent into skill. But then the third dimension is you have been called to be God-like. You have been called to be like God. You see, in Genesis, we sneak up on the gods having a conversation. And we don't know what preceded the conversation, but we just come to the conclusion of the conversation. So... You understand when you're going to create something, you have to choose what's going to inspire that creation. If you're a fashion designer, well, this line is inspired by the Greco-Roman period. If you're a sculptor, you look at an image and you're you're going to sculpt based on that image. And the creator gods, they have a dilemma. What will be the source of the inspiration for this creation as they look at the creation of man. They consider consider the seas and all the great things that are in the seas, and they're like, look, man, not majestic enough. Things as amazing as lions, things as amazing as mountains, and, and they're amazing, but not amazing enough for this creation. They consider the heavens. I just told you about the V.Y. Canis Majoris and these heavenly bodies that are just beyond comprehension, but that's not vast enough for this creation. For this creation, the source of inspiration for making you is God himself. God himself. Your purpose is to be God-like. The path that you're on You're supposed to show what God looks like in that path. The skill set you've been entrusted with, the talent, you're supposed to cultivate it to the point where when people experience it, they're saying, you remind me of God. I have a little flicker of what God would look like doing that thing. You think I'm kidding. Let's take a look at Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, right? The path. So um, it's Michael's, Michael is trying out for the basketball team in high school. When he tries out, the story is so famous, did he make the team? No. He did make the team. 
He didn't make the team. This is what people don't know. The problem wasn't just making the team. Michael wanted to make the varsity team. But Michael's a sophomore. Sophomores traditionally don't make the varsity team. Except the time when Michael tried out, a sophomore did. It's just it wasn't Michael. Michael felt defeated. Michael runs home, runs into a bathroom, and cries his eyes out. And that experience produces the champion that we experienced in our lifetime. When he emerged from that experience, as a result of his path, it created his competitive edge. But not just that, not just his path, second dimension of his purpose. He's gifted with the talent. Six foot six, huge hands, um, 230 pounds, muscle bound. But that's not exactly an unusual characteristic in the NBA. What sets him apart? His commitment to cultivate his talent into skill. His conviction to encounter a challenge, an obstacle, go back to the work gym and cultivate a new skill to surmount that struggle, that obstacle. Second dimension of his purpose. Third dimension of his purpose. So second season in the NBA, Michael gets hurt early on, but he comes back with enough time to encounter Larry Bird and his Lakers. First game in the Boston Garden, Michael scores 63 points. 63 points. Larry Bird is then interviewed about what it was like to play Michael. Larry Bird says this, nobody could have done what Michael Jordan did to us that night. And then he says this, it was as if we were playing God disguised as Michael Jordan. It was as if we were playing God disguised as Michael Jordan. What are people saying about your performance? Your performance as a husband, your performance as a wife, your performance as a daughter, your performance as a clinician, those are certainly more important than putting a ball in a hoop. What are people saying about your performance, especially when God endowed you with the power to be godlike? Not God. That's what's stressing some of us out. We act like we think we're God. No, God-like. God-like. I've endowed you with the power. If you don't believe it, read it in Genesis. Let us make man in our image. I can see almost a smile on their face. Yeah. Let's make them like us. Does that make sense? So what is your purpose? Two words, to be God-like. Can I hear you say it? Amen. No, not amen. <laughs> God-like. <laughs> One more time. You've been made to be? May you never forget that. So when you're at that traffic light and somebody cuts you off, don't show what you look like. Don't show what you look like. That's not the calling. Show what 
God would look like in that situation. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. And so then we come to our third, uh, then then we come to the, the, the seventh vital connection. And what that connection is, is rest. Okay. And so um, here we talk about purpose. So let, let me just say rest really quickly. One of the, one of the wonderful things about um, Seventh-day Adventism, frankly, is it's built into our culture to systematically, periodically rest. One of the scariest things was to go from being a resident where you were salaried. So however much you work, same amount, of, same amount you generate to becoming an attending, where for some of us, if we're not working, we're not making money. And there is this automatic temptation to work all the time. Because there's this fear, if I'm not working, I'm not making money. And you now have to condition yourself. You now have to have the courage. You now have to have the faith. I need to systematically periodically take some rest. And this is a challenge. Because if your life is anything like my life, it is so difficult to get time off. Well, you got to submit this form, you got to warn this person, you got to find this coverage, you got to really review the schedule, you got to consult the spouse, make sure it makes sense for you to take that time off so schedules can be harmonized. By the you're like, look, I'll just keep working, man. Forget it. <laughs> It's almost like you get punished if you're trying to get time off. But you have to systematically, periodically rest. Thank God for the Sabbath. To this day, my favorite period of the week is not even the Sabbath. It's the 4 p.m. period on Friday evening when the entire Sabbath is ahead of me. You have to systematically, periodically rest. So what I'm arguing to you is... As you think about yourself, as you think about yourself, you should be thinking about, hey, what do these vital connections look like in my life? How am I doing spiritually? Am I connected to my my community meaningfully? Am I making a contribution in church? Um, uh, Where am I from a community standpoint? How am I doing in my romantic uh, community? romantic relationships? How am I doing in my non-romantic relationships? And, and just so you understand, like when I say scripture is helpful in this thing, for example, Christ says, be light. Where is light the brightest? At the source. Light is brightest at the source. So you can't be loving in your practice. And every single one of your patients says, this is the greatest doctor in the world. And at home, they barely can stand being around you. You see, light does not skip. You ever seen that? You ever see a bulb that it's dark around the bulb, but it's bright outside of that? I've never seen that. It's brightest at the source. So that means the family sings your praises. Sings your praises, and then it's... The practice is more like, okay, and he's good there too. And then it goes out. But it's brightest at the source. Does that make sense? And so, of course, you're you know, managing your resources because resources are a vital connection. 
Um, this afternoon in my plenary session, I am going to, plenary, in my workshop, my breakout, I am going to talk about, you know, how does this information age, how does this digital age, how is it rescuing physicians? Um, why is that our last um, hope? Because resources matter. How can we leverage our talents to uncouple our time from earning money? Um, and then, of course, there's rest and um, recreation. No, no, no. Resources, then time. So time is critical. How am I doing with my time? Do I control my time or does my time control me? Then health. You know, I hope you all are in, you know, telling your patients, go watch that documentary, What the Health. What the Health is profound. It's, 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 it's profound. You see, as Americans, um, we don't like people telling us what to eat. But what we really can't stand is you getting over on me. We don't like that. And that's what What the Health does like none of the other documentaries. It's like it shows the scam. You're like, oh, really? I'm going to eat those veggie franks just to tick you off. <laughs> How dare you um, take money from them and then not tell me the truth? So, yeah, what the health? As far as um, mental health, yet again, um, critical. Uh, something uh, very, very important uh, for us to understand. But you, you can see how you really cannot carve out mental health from these other vital connections. Um, it's almost as if you're going to help a person, you have to help them in those other vital areas of their lives. It's all connected. Purpose, you, you, I mean, that's why we spent the time that we did on purpose, because it is such a big issue. It's so vitally connected um, to your mental health. You, you, look at the, you look at whether it's uh, John the Baptist or you look at the apostles. These are people who are dying, and they're not looking for antidepressants. What's going on? I'm not saying that if you need an antidepressant, get the antidepressant. I get it. But what's going on? What's keeping these people from being depressed? Because the greatest antidepressant is being on your purpose. It's being in your purpose. It's when you wake up and you know I am living my God-given purpose. If that leads me to death, so be it. But, uh, but purpose is a big deal. And then systematically, periodically resting. We, we have to systematically rejuvenate. Listen to the word, recreate. Recreate. Uh, thank you so much for this opportunity to serve you. God bless you. Um, and if we don't meet on this side of the kingdom, we'll see you on the other side. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.